I remember very vividly the first Dallas Cowboy game I ever saw in my life. I don't remember how old I was, but I remember as a small kid sitting in my living room and I saw on the TV Dallas Cowboys, Washington Redskins. And as any good American kid, I said, Cowboys, Indians, I'm going with the Cowboys. <laughs> and from that moment on, I was a, uh, and still am, a very committed Dallas Cowboys fan. My grandmother loved Tom Landry. He spoke at the Southern Baptist Convention. He's not, he wasn't a Southern Baptist, but he spoke at the Southern Baptist Convention one time, and he became her hero, and so she just cultivated in me, if you're going to be godly, you have to be a Cowboys fan. And I loved America's team, still do. And, and from the time I could walk <clears throat> to the time I got to hold a football in my hand, I pretended that I was a Dallas Cowboys football player. And, and any moment I had to go outside and, and, and sort of play make-believe, I wasn't, I wasn't playing Cowboys and Indians necessarily. I, I wasn't playing war or combat or those sort of things. I pretended I was in the middle of some extremely important football game in the NFL, and I was the quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys. That, that was how I spent most of my days. Then when Troy Aikman was drafted. <clears throat> now, I couldn't play quarterback any longer because he was better than me. So I became the running back wide receiver and I returned punts. And that's who I was. That's what I did most of the days of my life. And this was before video games where you could create yourself and put yourself in the action and all of that. I just, in my mind, that's where I was anytime I had the opportunity. And I played by myself very detailed games for hours and hours. I would keep time. I would have a stopwatch and I would keep time. I would keep score. I would do pregame and postgame interviews out in the yard by myself doing all of these things. I would always make the winning play. I was always the hero. The trees in our yard were the first down markers. And then the ditches were the, were the, were the touchdowns. And I would dive in the ditch when I would score. And this, this was reality to me, telling this story in my mind. But there was always, every now and then, this awkward time where I would stop and I would see neighbors on the street who had just stopped to watch me play by myself. Like, what is this kid doing? I need to go talk to his parents. Something ain't right here. Because I'm out there throwing the ball to myself, getting tackled, breaking tackles, and no one is around. And I'm pretending like I have a microphone in my face after the game. And, and, and I remember sometimes neighbors would just stop and watch this. And it was always weird, sort of numbingly embarrassed. And so I would go inside and then again the next day I would go out and do, do the same thing. When we, when we think about coming to faith in Christ, it's kind of the same thing. We spend our life telling ourselves this story by ourselves, that we're the center of the universe, that we're all that matters. We make plans in our head to win the game, and we're going to be the one who's most important. And then all of the sudden, we realize we're not alone. All of the sudden, we realize someone has been watching. All of the sudden, we realize 
I'm not the hero, but the person who's been watching is the hero, and our lives are shattered in a very good way. This is exactly what Paul explains before King Agrippa as we begin to get into chapter 26. He stands before him and he tells him his story, his conversion story, in a very Jewish way that he would understand. And he says, King Agrippa, I was the most famous Jew. I'm not against Jews. By the way, I was the most famous Pharisee. I hated Christians and I killed Christians. I was the hero of my people. King Agrippa, you see all these people who are against me. You've heard the story of the Jews who hate me. Guess what? I was once their hero. I was once on the other side. And God flipped the script. I, I was telling this story where I was the center. And everybody thought I was the center. But guess what? There was someone else there. There was someone else watching. And on Damascus Road, as I was headed to kill more Christians with an order from the high priest to do so, I realized I wasn't alone. And I saw Jesus. And in that moment, I realized I wasn't the hero. He was the hero. And when we get to verse 19, he says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. I was not rejecting, bowing up to this heavenly vision any longer. Before, I was like an animal kicking at goads. I was being prodded along, and yet I was bowing up and kicking against the goads like a wild animal. But when I saw this bright light that outshone the sun and it blinded me, I could not disobey it. Throughout this section, light refers to God's revelation of Himself. Light reveals sin and pushes away darkness. And Paul says, that's exactly what happened when I saw Jesus. I saw Jesus blinding light full of glory. I saw the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and it revealed my sin and rebellion and it pushed out the darkness in my life. I could not disobey this heavenly vision. Verse 20, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. This is why I am here. God changed my mission. And when I saw this heavenly light, I could not disobey any longer. And notice the obedience here. Obedience is described here as him declaring the gospel, testifying the truth about Jesus. And he immediately started doing this in Damascus. This place where he was going to kill Christians is where he became a Christian and started declaring the truth that Christians declare Jesus is Lord. And then notice in verse 20 the pattern he describes here. He went to Damascus, then Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then also to the Gentiles. He describes his mission in the same way Jesus promised the mission of the church. 
And what Paul is saying is, I was on a mission to kill Christians. When I came to faith in Christ, I joined the mission of Christians, which is the mission Jesus promised to Christians. He is locking his arms with the risen Christ here. He describes his mission in the same way Jesus describes his mission, to take the gospel ultimately to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, those who don't have the law, they don't have the prophets, they don't have the traditions. And he says here, notice, for this reason, for this reason, I've been arrested. I've been arrested, imprisoned, interrogated for my mission, which ultimately isn't my mission, it's Jesus' mission. And so here you have Paul, he stood before Roman governors, he stood before Jewish kings, he stood before church folks, he stood before those who hate him, and nobody can really figure out what to do with him. And now King Agrippa is really confused with this guy. And just sort of interested. I want to know why you're here. And Paul says, I'm going to tell you why I'm here. I'm on a mission from Jesus. Jesus changed my mission and made my mission his mission. And he tells him before, I was blinded by Satan to destroy the church. Then I was blinded by Jesus to build the church with Jesus. My mission has changed. I was one who killed Christians. Now I'm willing to die as a Christian. God flipped the script. I went from being an enemy of God to a son of God, a child of God, loved by God. Now, this is exactly where some of us are here today. We're, we're asking, why am I here? You, you, you're, you're asking, what is my purpose? What is my mission? And many of you here today feel lost in that. You're here today and you don't feel any direction in your life. You're just sort of going through the motions. You get up every morning, you go to work, you do the best you can with your kids, and then you go to bed, and then you get up and you do it again the next day. And you're saying, why am I here? Why do I exist? Paul says, I'm going to tell you why I'm here, even standing in chains before this king. I'm only here because of Jesus' mission. And that's why you exist. God created you for His glory. He created you to declare His glory in the world. And yet we have all sinned against that purpose. But God's not done with the story at that point. He then rescues you and saves you to declare His glory in saving you in Jesus. And so your purpose is to declare the glory of God as a witness for Christ. If you're a Christian, that is your mission. That is why you exist. And Paul says, I began to understand that obedience to God meant obedience to Jesus. It meant to make disciples of all nations just like all other Christians were doing. It meant to go to the ends of the earth with the gospel just like the church in Acts chapter 2 was empowered to do. And he joined forces with Jesus. He realized that was his mission. That's why he existed. And that's the way you've got to see your life. You see, a lot of us here today, we view our lives in this linear way. I'm born and then I die. And we, we just see it on this flat line. One of the things Jesus does for us is he helps us see our lives on a 3D map. It's not just linear. You can't control when you're born or when you die. You have no control over that. But you can look around and say, where am I? Where am I and why do I exist? 
And Jesus has promised that we would take the gospel from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Richmond to the ends of the earth. He's promised that he will make disciples of all nations through the church. We get to the end, we see revelation, we see people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people before Jesus. There's a map for your life. Where do you fit on that map? Where do you fit in Jesus' plan? Here in Richmond is where you fit today. And where you are, you're there for Jesus. That's why you exist. And so you look around and you say, is my mission here the same as Jesus' mission here? Jesus wants to make disciples in Richmond. That's why he put you there. Whether you're a Walmart greeter, whether you're a factory foreman, whether you're a stay-at-home mom, whether you teach school, whether you're a professor, whether you're a student, you look around on the map of Jesus... Jesus' mission, and you say, He put me here at this moment on this day on mission for Him to declare His glory. That changes the way you see your life. You're no longer just getting up every morning, making it through the day. You realize every day you're on a mission, and you begin to see your mission in His story. Notice verse 22 that we read earlier. He continues to say, This is why I'm here. I've been arrested, I've been persecuted, but also, verse 22, I've had the help that comes from God. The only way I can stand before you and even endure this stay in prison for two years in Caesarea is by God's help. I'm still standing. I'm still standing. I've gone through all these rulers, all these elite leaders. Felix, he lost his job. Now we got Festus, he doesn't know what he's doing. And here you are, King Agrippa. You're the third one I know about. I'm still standing as a witness because God has put me before you here today to testify. Notice verse 22, both to small and great. Paul says it doesn't matter where I am. I'm in a town, a village full of pagan idolaters who want to stone me and kill me. I'm standing before philosophers. I'm standing before jailers. I'm standing for, before businessmen. I'm standing before businesswomen, those who are practicing the occult, kings, rulers. My job is very simple. Wherever I am, I am declaring the truth of Jesus Christ. And now I'm before you. So guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to declare to you what Moses said would come to pass, verse 23, that the Christ, the King, must suffer. Jewish history included a king who would suffer, and by, by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And he says, King Agrippa, you know Jewish history. That's why you got your job, because you know Jewish history. You've read. You've had people come before you and teach you. And you know Moses said the Christ, the Messiah, would suffer, die, be raised, and the light of Israel would go to the Gentiles. You know this if you know Jewish history. And we see here with Paul, the Old Testament doesn't make sense without Jesus. It doesn't. The sin the law reveals, the law of Moses reveals, the law reveals sin. You're still in your sin without the cross of Christ. The Old Testament doesn't make sense without Jesus. He is the first to rise. We read our Old Testament. We read hero after hero after hero. And they all die. Every other hero has died. And Paul stands and says, except one, the Christ, he suffered, 
and He was the first to rise. The Old Testament doesn't make sense without Jesus. But notice He continues. And that He, the Christ, the Messiah, would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Now, the Old Testament doesn't make sense without Jesus, but the Old Testament doesn't end with Jesus. Jesus' story of cross and resurrection. Notice how the story continues. You see cross, you see resurrection, and then you see proclamation. You see mission. The whole story of Jesus, it includes His life, His cross, His resurrection, and now it includes His mission. And He stands before King Agrippa and He says, guess what? We're still in the story. The story Moses started, it's still going on. Israel was to be a light to the nations. The light of Jesus has come, and He is the light to the nations. He's taking the light to the nations. The story keeps continuing. And how is He doing that? Through proclamation. And how is He proclaiming it? I'm standing here today proclaiming it to you, King Agrippa. We're in the story. The story hasn't ended. We are here proclaiming the story of Jesus in the story of Jesus. You've got to see your life that way. You, as a Christian, have to begin seeing your life in the story of Jesus. Jesus was crucified. In Jesus' story, you've been crucified for your sins already in Him. In Jesus' story, He was raised from the dead. When you believe in Jesus, you've been crucified and you've already been raised from the dead and you're waiting for that already not yet to happen. Your resurrection is true. But also when you're in the story of Jesus, you've been crucified, you've been raised, you're also proclaiming. Notice Jesus isn't stopped. He hasn't stopped. He's ruling, He's reigning at the right hand of God, but He's also proclaiming the light to the ends of the earth. And just like crucifixion, just like resurrection, that's the story you're still in. Mission. We look around, we're in the story right now. And you must see your mission, get this, in His story. You must see your mission in His story, not His mission in your story. There's a difference there. So many of us, we wake up and say, no, this is my legacy. This is the story I'm telling. YOLO, you only live once. I'm going to make the best out of it. And if I can fit Jesus' mission into this story, if I can, on a Sunday morning and every now and then, fit it in, I will. And you've got things backwards. No, you're in God's story telling His legacy. And He has fit your mission in this world, in His story. And then everything begins to make sense. Jesus is still telling the story and He has graciously allowed you in the story. Jesus is still on mission from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth and He is telling this masterpiece of a story from Genesis to Revelation, from let there be light to come Lord Jesus, come. And in the middle of all that, He has written you shopping at Walmart today. That's a part of the story. The story hasn't ended. That means there's no neutral moment in your life. Your mission at all times is in His story that He's still telling. The Spirit is still writing things. 
Tomorrow when you... Not authoritative Word of God things that are, are without error. You understand that, right? I'm not a heretic. Check our doctrinal statement, I promise. But he's still pinning this masterpiece in human history. And he's allowed you to be a part of it, to echo that story to the ends of the earth. And so when you get up and you're driving to work tomorrow, you understand you're still in the story. And so what will your mission be that day? Sitting around the coffee pot in the break room. What are you going to do in the story? What, what marvelous, adventurous, crazy thing is Jesus going to allow you to be a part of? Maybe you'll have a flat tire. And your story, if it's just your story, you're going to be really miserable. But if you're in Jesus' story, that AAA guy that comes to fix your tire, what story might Jesus tell if I share the gospel with him? What story might this guy be telling five years from now if I share the gospel with him? On your way to work, sitting around dinner conversations, at soccer practice, at the ball game. You notice I distinguish between soccer and ball game. Those are two different things. Soccer is just sort of an athletic event that, that <laughs> takes up free time. Just kidding. But, but the Spirit is always telling something and you have to engage it by seeing that you're on mission in His story. And notice, he continued, the text continues, and as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus, this Roman governor over Judea, he's new on the job. He doesn't really understand Jewish history. He's a Roman. He's, he's marred in Gentile belief. He says with a loud voice, Paul, okay, I'm embarrassed. I thought all this was going to make sense. Now you're talking about someone back from the dead. Now you're talking about someone raised from the dead. Paul, you are out of your mind. I, I've, I've read your resume. I know how smart you are. I, I, I know that, that, that you're a great teacher, but your learning is driving you out of your mind. If you're talking about this Jesus being being melded into Jewish history and now he's the Messiah back from the dead and you, you little pathetic prisoner standing before me talking about you're still in his story. You've lost your mind. But notice what Paul says. I'm not out of my mind. Most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. Now that would have been an insult because he would have prided himself on rational thought to some extent. And what Paul is saying is this is the most reasonable thing in the world that Jesus is raised from the dead. And, and, and he says, King Agrippa, you know this. You know this. Verse 26. For the king knows about these things. He knows Jewish history. And to him, I'm speaking boldly. Festus, I ain't talking to you. I'm talking to the king. You brought him in here before me with all of these dignitaries. I'm not talking to you. He knows this is true. He's read these stories. He's also heard of Jesus being raised from the dead and declared by his followers. This hasn't been done. Notice, I'm speaking boldly, for I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. He knows full well the story, for this has not been done in a corner. Now that right there is a shot at everybody Paul has stood before. Because everybody Paul has stood before in Jerusalem and Judea, they're hiding things. They have a secret life. And Paul's standing before them saying, 
I ain't got nothing to hide. Felix had murdered a high priest. Drusilla, his wife, she had left her husband for Felix. They were marred in unrighteousness. Festus is, is, is hiding his ignorance of all of these politics. He probably doesn't even understand what he's doing, and he's trying to hide it in these moments. And the king Agrippa, who he stands before, and his sister Bernice, PG version, they were married. And he says, but I ain't hiding nothing. All you rulers, this pomp that you come before me, I ain't hiding anything. You think Jesus of Nazareth raised from the dead is crazy? No, you're all hiding something. And Jesus of Nazareth, he ain't been doing what he's doing in a corner. Paul says, I ain't hiding anything. And then verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? He, he zeroes in on a personal witness to this king. I know you believe. You, you, you've heard these stories. I know you believe. And notice Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? This little personal testimony is going to make me, this Jewish king, this, this king over the Jews, a Christian? Your little personal testimony, Damascus Road stuff? You ain't preached long enough, Paul. You ain't preached. Paul says, okay, I can preach longer. But you think that's going to persuade me? Notice, and Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all that would hear me this day might become such as I am, except for the chains. He adds that in. I would love for you to become a Christian just like me. You may not want the chains. Now, Agrippa was a disgusting, incestuous man. And Paul stands before him and says, and I was once disgusting. I once rebelled against Jesus. And you can become like me. You can become a Christian like me. And notice, we would think, Paul, get back and get focused on getting, getting, to, getting to Rome. You know, why did you take this detour? You're going to end up back in jail. You're going to end up killed. Paul says, no, Jesus has promised I'm going to Rome. And with such boldness and authority, he looks the king in the eye and he calls him to be a Christian. Notice verse 30. Then the king arose. And the governor and Bernice and those who are sitting with him. So everybody gets up and leaves at that point. It's getting too personal. It's getting too personal. Have you ever been in that situation where you're sharing the gospel with somebody? And you're just sort of talking about generic Christianity, generic church stuff, generic good, you know, do-goodisms. And then you look them in the eye and you say, what about you? Have you ever believed the gospel? Hey, I, will, I, think, I, I think I need a Coke. I think I need some popcorn at the concession stand. I, I, I got some things I need to do. That's exactly what's going on here. It's gotten too personal for the king. And notice, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death and imprisonment. And we get to this chapter and go, over two years from Jerusalem to Caesarea, and now you're going to stand up and say he didn't do anything? Why haven't you let him go? And the reason is everybody's scared of everybody. The, the, the Romans are scared of the Jews, so they won't let him go, so they've kept him in prison. And everybody's worried about what everybody else is doing, and Paul is still in prison, still in chains. 
And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Agrippa says this, Paul is innocent. And this is the fifth time in all of this that Paul's innocence has been declared. The Pharisees, the tribune, twice by the governors, and now Agrippa. And they're probably sitting around to themselves saying, you know, that was fun, hearing about the resurrection. You know, Paul, that's a spunky guy. But he's really not done anything wrong. He's just kind of like a toy to them at this point. He hasn't done anything wrong. And they're probably saying, he's such a fool. If he would have kept his mouth shut... If he would not have appealed to Rome, if he wouldn't have had asked to go to Caesar, he would have been set free. And at first we think there's some comfort in Agrippa saying he's innocent. We're like, that's a win. That's a win. That's a good thing, right? There's no comfort in what Agrippa's doing here. What Agrippa's doing is the same thing people do at funerals. When they stand around and they talk about someone being in heaven, going resting high on the mountain... And, and they believe in Jesus and they, they're, they're saved and, and they, they stand back and they feel encouraged by those things, but they never believe the gospel. But they feel some comfort in their own life because they said good things about the person who's gone to heaven. And that's the same thing Agrippa's doing. He hasn't done anything wrong. He's innocent. And if he hadn't appealed to Caesar, he would have been set free. But the point here is, no, Agrippa, you could have been set free if you would have appealed to Jesus, a greater king, a greater ruler. And, and we see here this public witness. Paul says it's not in a corner. This public witness is for all men, kings and rulers. And there comes a point where there has to be a personal response from all people everywhere. They will have to do business with Jesus. He is God's resurrected King. He is God's public witness that God is good. God is faithful. God is true. God's defeated sin and death. Jesus is the public witness that everyone will have to do business with. And King Agrippa says, move on. Move on. The witness of Jesus moves right before him. And what we see in these chapters is all of these rulers look like fools. There's the irony there. All of this great pomp and, and great authority. In, in the beginning of chapter 6, we see the king comes in and he has all of these dignitaries around him. And there's a great scene in the city where the king's going to hear from this little prophet, Paul. And then he's amused by it and the witness moves right on. But the reality is the king has no power in this moment. The king can't send Paul anywhere but Rome. And why is that? The king ain't telling the story. Jesus has already said he's going to Rome. And so what we see in Agrippa is this fake plastic king with no authority. He is a puppet being played by Jesus to get Paul to Rome. And yet many of us here today, we sit before the witness in the same way. There's a lot of pomp. There's a lot of authority. We set ourselves up over the Word of God and say, okay, is this going to be a good sermon, a bad sermon? Am I going to get something out of it? Let me read the Word of God today and, and let me see if God has something there for me. Don't say that anymore. He does have something there for you. It's the Word of God that's about Jesus. You come before the Word of God searching for what God has revealed to you in Jesus to be changed by. 
And yet we come before we set ourselves up as the authority over the Word of God. And here is the catch. Here's the catch. You're not the one in authority. These kings and these rulers, the only reason you read about them today in this building, in this worship service, is because they're in Jesus' story. The only significance they have is that they are telling the story of Jesus as a prop to get Paul to Rome. And you have to sit back and realize that I'm in Jesus' story. And my only significance is if I'm going to dive into this story. Don't read your Bible like a dictionary. i got to search through, find something good. Don't read it like an encyclopedia. I'm just looking for some information to win Bible trivia. It's not an encyclopedia. It's not a dictionary. It's a story. And the gospel isn't bullet points that you have to affirm. Have to affirm. The gospel is an invitation to God's story. The good news today is that you can be a part of the story. You can be a part of the story. But unlike Felix, unlike Festus, unlike King Agrippa, you've got to realize you're not the king. You're not the hero. And this light of the witness has come before you today to realize you're not alone. Someone else is watching. And for most of the time, he's human. Because you're playing make-believe, acting like you're the hero. And you're not. Dive into His story. Make His story your story. See your mission in His story. Bow before His story. Enter into His story today.